You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your immune system is your body's primary defense. It's amazingly good at identifying and destroying foreign invaders. But sometimes it makes mistakes. And these days, our immune systems are making mistakes more often. Allergies, they're getting more prevalent. So you're seeing the rates of things like asthma, hay fever, eczema, and food allergy rise globally. But they're also getting more severe. So why does the immune system rear up against pollen or animal fur? And why is the prevalence of allergies on the rise? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, why food, skin, and respiratory allergies are becoming more common and what we might do about it. Grab some tissues, because this episode is Allergy Reason. The world can be a messy place. Invisible airborne invaders lurk everywhere. Even on a beautiful day, the air could be laced with things like automobile exhaust, dust, and pollen. Hello. How's it going? Good, how are you? Let's go maybe just under these trees over here, if that's okay. And your skin, the largest organ in the body, bravely confronts it all. But as our assistant producer Brian Edwards learned, we might want to resist our urge to scrub it down at the end of the day because our skin's microbiome is one of our immune system's first lines of defense. I'm James Hamblin. I am a preventive medicine physician and a lecturer in public health at Yale. Dr. Hamblin is the author of Clean, the New Science of Skin. Brian met him in Brooklyn. So we are sitting in Prospect Park right now. It's very beautiful, but I will admit it's a little hot out. I'm a little sweaty. After I head home, I think like many people, I might think to hop in the shower, but I have a feeling with what we're gonna talk about today that you might say, maybe not, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> run home <laughs> and jump in. I am reluctant to give anyone specific advice on this because it's a very personal issue, but there's a certainly room to be a lot more minimalistic than is the norm for many people. You wrote a book on the subject of being clean. What prompted you to write this? Well, I have an interest in the skin microbiome and in preventive medicine generally. And one of the things that most people feel is necessary to do every day is to clean themselves. And I became interested in the degree to which that cleaning might be affecting the microbiome on the skin. Are you still continuing the regimen of, you know, showering irregularly or, you know, yeah. only sparingly, essentially, as you laid out in the book? There are headlines out there that say that I have not showered for seven years, and that's just not true. Uh, there was a period where I went with absolutely nothing, but I've tried kind of every permutation of, you know, showering less frequently, using fewer products, and I'm off of deodorant mostly, and then I shower only with water. And uh, I wash my hands. I never stopped washing my hands. And I wrote a short article in The Atlantic about it. And the feedback I got was so polarized and intense. You know, some people telling me, I've been doing this my whole life, and I, I can't tell my own kids because I think they... <sighs> disown me, uh, and other people saying that, I, you know, I should lose my medical license for even suggesting that people not shower every day. 
So I understood there was something more to this than just microbes on the skin. <laughs> and I wanted to take a deeper dive into all of the factors that make us want to or feel the need to clean ourselves beyond what is recommended for basic prevention of transmission of infectious diseases. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, specifically here in the U.S., the role that whatever we want to call it, big soap, big clean, whatever it is, kind of played in shaping, you know, what we think about as cleanliness. I was fascinated to learn the degree to which soap marketing had shaped the beliefs of the American public as far as what we consider to be necessary for health. And that's a very long story that begins with the Industrial Revolution and has played out ever since then in a sort of arms race of uh, expense and frivolity and additional products that are largely drawn from the soap industry on how to sell what is essentially the same product in hundreds if not thousands of different ways. In the process there arose many other products to sort of counteract these adverse effects and the main one being just that soap's function is to remove oils from your skin. So when you use a harsh soap or when you use a lot of soap or when you take long hot showers every day your skin will get dry and people reasonably benefit from products to counteract that and same thing with your hair with shampoo and and conditioner. You do lay out though that money issues aside the science shows that maybe there are some issues with washing off those oils and the different microbes that are on your body so can you just talk to me a little bit about that? Sure you know for a long time we didn't understand how vast the microbiome was in our gut and that's gotten a lot of attention and the skin microbiome is significantly smaller but we're still covered in microbes especially in you know the oilier areas of your body you're never free of those they're always there and the microbes on your skin if they are in a healthy place of equilibrium i guess the theory goes that they're playing a role in the functioning of the skin they're almost like another layer of the skin and that when we upset that microbiome we can see you know irritation inflammation dryness that is the theory. I think the fundamentally interesting thing is that most people would think anything that came off of you is, I don't know, bad or shameful or needs to be gotten rid of. And that is a real problem. Well, thank you so much, James, for taking the time to sit with me in the park. I very much appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Teresa McPhail. I'm a medical anthropologist and a professor of science and technology studies and the author of the book Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. We spoke with James Hamblin, and he writes that our skin is better off if we do less showering. And he stopped showering for a long, inordinate <laughs> period of time. Is he on the right track? Yes. I mean, I would say yes. I don't know about inordinate amount of time, James. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's overkill. But I, too, have stopped showering every day, um, simply because I'm trying to make better decisions for all of those bacteria and viruses and funguses on my skin. So they need to be left alone. Like if you're constantly stripping them. And in fact, a researcher at Northwestern found that if you remove the skin microbiome of mice and then introduce an allergen, they are much more likely to develop eczema. So if you're stripping the natural bacteria off of your skin, and then you're adding other things. Like, look, think about the things you put on your skin this morning. What did you use? Did you wash your face? What kind of soap was it? You patted your face with a towel. What did you wash that towel with that's leaving residue on your skin? Then you put on lotion probably, right? Like, think of all the things you're introducing into your immune system, and you've just stripped it of all of the things that it's used to really challenges the definition of what an animal is. So right. humans are animals, but we have more microbes, I think microbes in us yes. and on us than we do human cells. That's correct. I mean, we are not separate <laughs> from right. the microbiome. We are the microbiome. Well, maybe I should experiment with not taking showers. It sounds like the critters that make up the skin's microbiome 
are essential to our health. Seth, do the rest of us get to weigh in whether or not you continue to shower? Well, I I don't think you would be so brazen as to tell me if I needed a shower, but maybe. (laughs) But, you know, even beyond the unwanted drying of my skin, could there be other adverse consequences to scrubbing that microbiome away? Well, our compulsion for cleanliness... That's been identified as one of the things contributing to the increased prevalence of allergies. Currently, the fraction of the public that has skin, food, or respiratory allergies is a little more than one-third. But that fraction is changing. About 50% of us, so about 3.2 billion people globally, will have an allergy to at least one thing by 2040. We'll hear more about what's going on and what factors might be triggering a rise in cases of itchy skin and watery eyes. But first, what happens with the immune system when an allergy strikes? After all, the immune system has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years. So what's it doing misidentifying otherwise benign substances, like pollen or peanuts, as harmful invaders? There are actually two parts of the immune system working side by side. And the first one is called the innate immune system, and that's online from birth. So we're all born with it. It has components like the mast cells and basophils, which are classes of white blood cells in your body. And they respond to things without any memory. The other system is called the adaptive immune system, and that's primarily the system that's involved with allergies. So that is the system that adapts to the environment. So it's the system that remembers things. The first line of defense provided by your adaptive immune system is white blood cells. These T cells and B cells circulate through your bloodstream, various tissues, and between lymph nodes. Think of T-cells as passport control officers, checking the credentials of every cell they encounter and drawing on past interactions to identify nasty foreign invaders. And when they spot something, they have to make a decision. They either tolerate that thing, so a good example of this is food. We eat a lot of food, and it gets broken down, and trace amounts of it get into the bloodstream, and your T-cell will see that and go, ah, that's fine to be here. And other things like the coronavirus will get into your bloodstream and your cells go, no, (laughs) absolutely not. So what a T cell will do is take a snapshot of that thing and then carry that snapshot to a class of cells called B cells. And B cells are responsible for forming all those nice antibodies that circulate throughout your system that remember the things that your T cells have come into contact with. So they are the memory of your immune system, basically. And those antibodies with the impressive memories are an alphabet soup of names. IgS, IgA, IgD, IgE, IgG, IgM. So the antibodies are like the bouncers of your immune system. So they are at various entrances. So your immune system is basically anywhere that you come into contact with the world. So in your skin, in your digestive tract, in your nasal and respiratory tract, even in your urinary tract. Like there's a lot more immune cells in those places because they're coming into contact with things. And so those bouncers are unique in the sense that every single bouncer is made specifically for that particular perpetrator. So when you're feeling crummy with the flu, you might cheer yourself up by imagining your immune system making quick work of foreign invaders. But mistakes do happen. Sometimes the immune system identifies a harmless substance as a threat. After all, allergens like pollen, animal fur, and peanuts are not intrinsically harmful. They're not pathogenic bacteria or viruses. Yet the immune systems of allergic individuals act as if they are. This is the really interesting thing because it does differ, but not by that much. It's basically alerting the B cells to produce a particular type of antibody. So we have five different types of antibodies that are all doing different things in the immune system. And we honestly don't know that much about all of their functions, but we do know that the IgE antibody is the one that is affecting the immune system with allergies. So it's the one that's imprinted on the allergens. And we do know there's this interesting fact that people who are more prone to allergies, they're called atopic. 
And basically what that means is they usually have more IgE, so their body, their B cells produce a greater quantity just on a normal basis, so they'll have more IgE circulating anyway. But also their mast cells, so the mast cells are like the first responders of the immune system. When it turns on, they're usually the conductors of that um, experience, that event. And so what will happen is the IgE will bind to mast cells and turn on histamine production. In atopic people, there's actually more receptors on the mast cells for IgE. So if you like, they're predisposed to this kind of response. But obviously, this response wasn't originally designed, if you like, for that response. It's obviously was there for something else. And so the IgE is now imprinting onto things that are otherwise harmless, like dust mites or pollen, because either it lacks the thing that it used to be there for, or it's just gotten confused by the multitude of things it's coming into contact with today. And we don't really understand why. What might confuse it? Well, here's one clue. Since World War II, there are now 85,000 chemicals on the EPA's uh, Toxic Control Substances Act watch list. And those would all, most of them, would be new to our immune systems. And so I think that's what it's like to be the immune system. It's overwhelmed and it's cautious. We are not creating a world that our immune systems feel comfortable in. Our immune systems are irritated. We'll hear about other ways our environment has changed. But first, here's more about how allergic reactions differ from other immune responses. When a body encounters an allergen, those special allergy cells, mast cells, trigger something familiar to all you allergy sufferers, the production of histamine. But that in itself is not the problem. Would you have the trigger of histamine if it were a virus or a bacteria or the immune system were functioning? I want to say normally, I want to use that carefully. Um, Is it the triggering of the histamine, which is unique to allergens that causes the problem? No, because you will get mast cells will trigger. So a mast cell, which is one of the oldest parts of the immune system. So we think that mast cells are up to 500 million years old. And what they will do is if they are stressed or damaged, they will send out histamine. And histamine does a whole bunch of things in the body. It creates mucus. So that's why you get stuffy. It can lead to a runny nose. Um, It swells your tissues. So you get swelling at the site of, like, say, mosquito bites, that kind of thing. You'll get itching and hives sometimes. It also can constrict the muscles around your lungs. So, for instance, in asthma, histamine is really making it more difficult to breathe. So that's why people have asthmatic attacks. And then in full-on anaphylaxis, so for food allergy or if you have a drug allergy or an allergy to bee venom, then you will the histamine will open your blood vessels, dilate them, and it crashes your blood pressure. And so it can send people into a cardiac event. So all of that is going on at the same time. The It's the scale of the event. So for most of us, a mild, you're stopping at mucus. <laughs> or you're, <laughs> you're stopping at itchy eyes. And, and for unfortunately, the more you move up the severity scale, then, you know, if you have a severe allergy to peanuts, say, you're ending up in the ER with a full-on anaphylactic event. I see. So the response can be individualized, and it's not the release of histamine per se, because histamine has other functions in the body. So it seems to be to be clear about the point at which things go haywire is that the immune system is producing an exaggerated response to an otherwise harmless cell. Correct. That's the moment where you go down the route of allergies instead of normal or well-functioning immune system. Well, it is still a well-functioning immune system. It is still. That's the, that's the irony, is that people who have allergies actually have very robust immune systems. They're just triggering with the wrong substances. Why are our immune systems being activated by the wrong substances? Dr. McPhail was determined to find out after a doctor's diagnosis of her sudden onset of respiratory problems a few years ago left her in disbelief. 
And here's a professional who spent 30 years looking in people's nasal cavities telling me, no, you're definitely having allergies. And I started talking about this with friends and I realized how many of us have allergies and never talk about it. Well, we're talking about it. More on why our immune systems are going rogue next. It's Allergy Reason on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Maybe right now you're enduring bouts of sneezing and itchy eyes, and if so, you've got a lot of company. The number of allergy sufferers is increasing, but medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail says we haven't always contended with allergies. How they affect us and how that is changing is what she addresses in her book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. I was on a mission to figure out when allergies first began and whether or not we've always had them. And the answer is we've always had anaphylaxis. So there's evidence even 5,000 years ago that people were occasionally succumbing to something like a wasp sting but or a, or a poisonous snake bite. But the things we think of as allergies, so hay fever, skin problems, food allergies, they didn't exist until about 200 years ago, more or less, around the start of the Industrial Revolution. And so from that time period, it's almost like you can predict the ways in which people are going to start suffering. It starts with hay fever and asthma, and then it moves into skin allergy and food allergy. And you can see this happening in real time in places like India, just got through with this massive spike in asthma rates. Their asthma rates have started to level off and they've just started their skin and food allergy. And the same with China. So when you move masses of people into a new socioeconomic class, which is what industrialization does, which is great, it has this accidental effect of producing a more allergenic population. Some people may find it surprising that, uh, for example, eczema is included under the umbrella of allergies. And you said asthma, which is, I thought, related to allergies, but not exactly an allergy. So I wonder if you could tell us <laughs> what all is included under this umbrella of allergy and what do they all have in common? They all have in common the immune response. So basically, it's the immune system involvement in the condition. So when I went to the National Institutes of Health, uh, what the experts would tell me is that all of these things use the same mechanisms. So they're comfortable calling things like eczema and asthma allergenic diseases because mostly they are. You can get asthma that's triggered by exercise. So that's not an allergy-related asthma, but it's still turning on the exact same system as someone whose asthma is triggered by pollen. So in large part, some people want to keep it separate for various reasons, but more and more people are starting to think of these things as a class of disorders that all have the same biological pathways. And so it behooves us to study them all together rather than separately, since we really, what we really need to understand is that immune function. What is the evidence that they are proliferating, and are they doing so at the same rate? And is there one allergy that is sort of out in front? 
The evidence that we have, so it's really hard to get good data. Most of the data that we have is self-reported, which is tricky for obvious reasons. It's asking people to understand, perhaps without going to see a physician to confirm that they have something. But the way we know that it's a real incident is things like clinician diagnostic codes. So that increased. ER visits. So if you just look at the number of people showing up in the ER for asthma events and for food allergy events, you can see a clear rise. And things like prescriptions. So you can kind of look and see how many people are buying Zyrtec (laughs) and then predict how many people are more people are suffering. So there are these things that are more concrete that we can look at that kind of try to get away from self-reporting, since that can be a lot trickier. Asking if someone has a food allergy isn't necessarily going to actually capture everyone, and it also depends on on who's going to see the doctor. So even diagnostic data isn't, we think there it probably is a bigger problem, because you might living in the middle of nowhere and never go to a doctor, but be struggling. So the guesstimates are the best things that we have. And the converse that you might be more aware of allergies, see that your friend is on some allergy medicine. So then you go to the doctor and you say, I've been having this problem. And then you would get on medicine too. So it might be also people are reporting it more. It's both. I mean, it's the initial thing is reporting more, but then once, like right now, for instance, if you see rates go up now, it's we've done a pretty good job with awareness. So at this point, if you see things go up, that's a true increase since we are at a point where we're pretty saturated. I, I would suggest it would be very hard for us to go out into the street and find someone who hasn't heard of allergy. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about your book, many things, uh, partly it just brings the whole subject of allergy to the fore, is that you say that even if an allergic response is not life-threatening, we can spend an inordinate amount of time dealing with allergies. I wonder if you could describe how allergies are actually a burden for millions of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I learned from talking to so many people who have an allergy is that it really impacts their lives. So it doesn't matter if it's mild, moderate, severe, it's impacting someone's life at every stage. So even people with mild hay fever, say, which we would probably poo-poo the most as a society, they are struggling to sleep at night during the worst of the pollen months. I mean, everyone's struggling right now. The pollen is just out of control in most places. And so they're not sleeping at night, which of course has knock-on effects, right? You're fatigued. You're not feeling your best. You're having difficulty breathing. I mean, anybody who's had a stuffy nose (laughs) understands what that's like. It's not a pleasant experience. And the thing about allergy sufferers is that they have just learned to adapt to a lower quality of life. To just feeling crummy instead of good or not so good. Yeah, Right. And that is a harsh truth. For people like eczema, I mean, that is one of the worst ones for quality of life because your skin is touches everything. And so their skin is itchy. They have uncontrollable urges to scratch. It looks inflamed. So, you know, if it's on the hands or face or something they can't cover, it's obvious and people stare at them. So there's a social consciousness there that the other allergies kind of don't have to deal with. They also don't sleep very well. It's It's just a struggle. And of course, for food allergies, the main struggle is anxiety. So, you know, for most of us, I can go to a coffee shop, get a muffin, and I'm not racked with uncertainty about what's in that muffin. Are there nuts in it? Yes. And for those people who have food allergies, they're constantly worried if they're not preparing the food themselves, whether or not they're going to get an accidental exposure. And that can make the whole world seem like a hazardous zone. And in a way, those of us without food allergies really struggle to perceive the world like that. But um, researchers have found that, especially parents of those with severe food allergies, their stress levels are equal to someone who just had a major heart attack. So it is quite stressful to have an allergy or to have a family member with a severe allergy. You have found in your reporting that allergic reactions are a blend of 
our genes and also the environment. And the environment is changing, and we'll get to that. But I wonder if you could give us an overview of what the role of genes are in allergies, and can we really inherit our grandparents' hay fever? Yes, but not directly. The interesting thing is you will inherit the atopy I was talking about. So there are genetic components that drive how many antibodies you produce or that type of thing. And we think there are about 141 gene segments that correlate roughly to the people who have atopy. And so we know that they're involved, but that's quite a lot of segments. And it's because there's so many different pathways that can drive an allergic response. One of the researchers explained to me that there are 30,000 different ways to trigger an allergic response. And the reason is, think of it as your pin code. So it's four digits, but you have 10 digits to input. And so that's thousands of combinations. That's exactly our immune responses. So I could have a shellfish allergy, and you can have a shellfish allergy. But the way that unfolds will be incredibly unique, and it will not affect us in the exact same way. Interesting that you (laughs) said example, because I do have a shellfish intolerance, and it came up just two years ago, suddenly. Right. And then I had it tested, and thank goodness it's not an allergy, but I can't eat shrimp without getting very sick. Yeah. Well, we are seeing more and more onset of allergies as adults. So it used to be the case, like, say, 30 years ago, they would tell you, well, if you didn't have this allergy as a kid, you're good for life. And what we're seeing now is that people are developing true allergies. In your case, maybe not, but other people really will be showing up with hay fever they've never had, with suddenly having a problem with asthma, suddenly having an eczematic rash that they never had as a kid or food allergies that they didn't have as a kid. So there's more and more adult onset. And that is a puzzle because this really is a newer trend that we haven't seen before, that they're not really sure why. Because you can grow out of an allergy, but... You can grow into one, too. You can apparently grow into one, yeah. (laughs) Coming back to the genes, so... If you inherit production of certain antibodies, does that mean that when your your body is overreacting to an otherwise harmless substance, does it go back to your genes? Is that why it's doing that? Well, it's it's tricky because it simply means that you inherited the type of immune system that is prone to developing an allergy. But one of the questions that most researchers have is why we tend to conserve genes that are helpful. And so the question is, why would we have conserved a gene or whole segment of genes that produces an anaphylactic response. Like, it would what seem on earth? quite maladaptive. <laughs> yeah. Or not even that, or just to get hay fever right. when you're out in the fields or something. Right. Yes. What is the evolutionary so they, explanation? They think that the reason we have conserved some of these genetic segments is that it used to be helpful in the sense of, like, if you think back to, you know, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years ago when we were first evolving, Because all mammals have similar immune systems. So what was in the environment that humans would have needed something like an anaphylactic response to deal with? And some of the thinking has been, well, insects, so venomous insects, and venomous snakes, reptiles, and things like sea anemones and things in the ocean that would sting you. And the theory was is that your immune system would have to alert you to A, get the heck out of there, and to B, slow down the circulation of that toxin in your blood. And what they found using mice models, and of course we're not mice, but what they found is if you knock out the gene for IgE, so that class of antibodies that drives the allergic response, if you knock it out, mice are much more likely to succumb to an anaphylactic event in response to a toxin from a normal common asp that was in the Mediterranean in the Fertile Crescent. So it's possible that in the past, that immune system component would have potentially, if you're lying flat on the ground and you have anaphylaxis, it's slowing the circulation. So your body might have time, so to speak, to deal with the toxin while your blood pressure is depressed. 
So they did find that the mice who didn't have that capacity died much more frequently than the mice that did. Does that explain, though, the reaction to things like pollen and cat fur, or is that a... What just a, a secondary effect? Secondary effect. And it's rather like a few people were would describe it as if, you know, when you leave a three-year-old alone in a room with nothing to do, <laughs> you know what happens. They, they will find, find, they find something. something. Yeah. <laughs> you come back, there's marker on your wall. <laughs> the same thing for... That's on you for leaving the markers in the room, though. It is. It is. <laughs> but the thing about IgE is that if it's circulating in your body, like if there's a component of the immune system that no longer has, like, I don't know about you, but the last time I was bitten by a venomous snake was never... And so if we don't have the same things in the environment, that that component of the immune system that might have also been there for parasites. So we used to always, you know, most of us had worms or some sort of parasite in us. And that immune system also responds to that. And so it's like if it doesn't have anything to do, it's going to find something to do. And what it's found to do is pollen. Up next, Teresa McPhail addresses what we're itching to know. If the number of people diagnosed with allergies is steadily increasing, what exactly is contributing to the rise? Well, find out how our diets and changes to the environment are giving our immune systems a workout. We hope this episode of Big Picture Science doesn't bring tears to your eyes, but it is allergy reason. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We began this episode with the account of two medical professionals who, to protect their microbiomes, have significantly cut down on showering. One even went five years without a shower. While medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail didn't go that far, she says that our overly antiseptic, germicidal behavior may be one of the factors driving the rise in allergy cases. Now she explains some others and also gives a fuller account of the hygiene hypothesis. It's been partially discredited, I should just say that at the start, but it's obviously also partially true. So in the 1970s, a British researcher was doing a meta-study. So he was looking at a lot of studies on, I believe, asthma patients. And he was trying to, you know, he's an epidemiologist, he's trying to find patterns. And one of the things he discovered is that your risk of something like asthma went up if you were in a smaller family. So if you were in a family with a lot of siblings and you were the youngest, you had a much lower risk of having asthma. And so he posited what could possibly be protecting these younger children in families of three or four. Mm. Siblings. And, siblings. Siblings. That's what he thought. Yes. The older siblings would be bringing home all the germs and these younger siblings would be getting more infections and that something about that was protective for allergic disease. And you do find there's something called the farmhouse effect. So the key studies were done in Switzerland and Germany on rural farms. And what they found is if, if children were born on the farm and carried in and out of a barn, but the key component is the barn had to have animals. So it didn't matter what kind of animals though, pigs, cows, chickens, what have you, it just had to have livestock. There was something protective about being carried in and out of that barn under the age of three. 
So you had to be exposed at a very young age. And then the rates of allergenic disease in that population is incredibly low. And so Mm. they thought there's something magical about farmhouse dust. But the interesting thing is we don't know what it is. Is it uh, the mixture of bacteria that so they're getting exposed to more bacteria? Is it the combination of bacteria and dander, so the animal dander that's also in the barn. So that is suggesting that there's some protective effect. But if that were true, you would expect to see lower rates of asthma in farmers, and you don't. And animals, nearly all of our infectious diseases come from animals. They're all zoonotic diseases. So these young children may be exposed to all sorts of bacteria and viruses. They might be getting sick, but their immune systems are also getting a workout. Right. And so that's the old friends hypothesis. So so that's the updated version of the hygiene hypothesis. So we have the hygiene hypothesis, the barn (laughs) hypothesis, okay, and the old friends (laughs) hypothesis. The old friends hypothesis is related to the microbiome. So it's the idea that there are certain bacteria, viruses, and fungus in our environment that are friendly and commensural. So they, like, help us in some way. And they make up the microbiome on our skin, in our nasal cavity, and in our stomach. And so if you don't get the exposure to the right good bacteria then your immune system doesn't learn its surroundings. It doesn't get trained in the proper way. And then it's more prone to latching on to something that it is otherwise should not be triggering it. And so what they found looking at researchers at the University of Chicago have found that if you look at the gut microbiome of two sets of infants, one with milk allergy and one without, that their gut microbiomes look incredibly different. You said that the immune system needs to be trained by a certain age, and you presented the age of three. Is that about the time when the gate comes down? It's sort of like teaching a child a a foreign language. I I think that's age seven or so, and then it's harder after that. Right. So after the age of three or so, it becomes a little bit more difficult. That's correct. To train the immune system. Yeah. And once you, it's almost like you're priming it in a certain way. And it's kind of learning. It has to learn how to exist in in its environment. And unfortunately, I mean, to go back to the evolution, our immune system is very old and things are changing very fast. And so you've got kind of a mismatch there. It has been trained on a certain set of bacteria and viruses, and now that has completely shifted. And so one of the theories is that our immune systems just haven't kept up with that change. Let's not forget worms. I think that I will go to bed tonight (laughs) thinking about the worms that once used to be in my ancestors. Okay, but this would seem very intuitive to people. This makes a lot of sense. However, you said that the hygiene hypothesis has been either partially partially discredited. Why? That seems to be make a lot of sense. Because it can't possibly be the only answer because you will see, like I said, they're in farming communities have the exact same amount of allergies in the developing worlds now. And you go to a place like Uganda. So Uganda has still larger families. So a lot of people still having multiple children, like four or five children. They're still living in farming communities. So you would expect that if you went out to a rural farming village in Uganda, nobody would have allergies. And what they're finding is not only do they have the exact same amount of sensitization, they're starting to show signs of more respiratory allergies. So there's some other component at play that can't just be explained by that protective effect of having older siblings and being in the countryside. So maybe it hasn't been partially discredited so much as it it's not the soul. Right. It's one of the one of the factors. Now, you talked about the gut microbiome and how that may be changing, but that is also changing because of our diet. Correct. And how are, has our diet changed? It's the gut microbiome is interesting because it proves two things. So antibiotic use skyrocketed after World War II. I mean, that's when they were introduced. And so that dramatically changes our microbiomes. So if you look at children who have been given multiple doses of antibiotics by the age of two, their gut microbiomes are incredibly different than infants that, who have not had more than, say, one dose of antibiotics. So that's one thing that's changed. But then the diet has changed. So 
if you think about it, 5,000 years ago, we were eating completely differently. We were eating different foods, that's A, and we were growing them and manufacturing them differently, right? So we have modern manufacturing, we have all these additives, and so we're changing the food not just for us, but we're also feeding all of those bacteria in our guts. And they don't like, some of them love the fat and sugar. Some of them are feasting (laughs) and they are getting out of control. But we're accidentally starving perhaps some of the good bacteria that are helping maintain that balance because they're not getting fiber. 90% of Americans don't eat enough fiber. And that's fruits, vegetables, whole foods, basically. And so if your microbiome isn't getting all the ingredients to be balanced, you're going to see a changing of the type and makeup of that gut microbiome. When you talk about environmental factors that are contributing to the rise of allergies, you mentioned all of this seems to have started with the rise of the Industrial Revolution. So environmental pollution, pollution would be a factor. What about climate change? Climate change is really messing with respiratory allergies, primarily. So So obviously things are getting warmer, and especially here in the northern hemisphere, growing seasons are getting longer. And so you're getting pollen for an extended amount of time, and then there's no killing frost in the winter. So you've got pollen for longer, but you've also got more pollen because we're pumping out more carbon dioxide. And plants love it. Some plants are just thriving. So plants like ragweed, like unfortunately, a lot of us have ragweed allergy. Ragweed loves CO2. It can't get enough of it. The other problem is with wetter weather. And so you're having more flooding and that's creating more mold spores. So we're starting to see a lot more mold allergy. Well, Teresa, I wonder if you could give us an overview of allergy treatments and where they're headed and If diet is a problem, could we change our diets and would that improve our allergy symptoms? So that's the kind of at-home treatment. But the at-home treatment versus the the big picture medical treatments. I think most people would be surprised to learn that treatments really haven't changed over the past 100, 200 years. So the main things that we do are try to stop the histamine from happening, the chain reaction of histamine. So you have antihistamines, which are exactly what they sound like. (laughs) They're just trying to disrupt that histamine production. You have steroids. So the other option for asthma and for skin is you tamp down that immune response. Steroids are a blunt force tool. So they just turn off the immune system a little bit. And that's good in the sense of less allergies, but it's bad in the sense of more secondary infections and other issues. And so we don't love to use them and we don't love to use them long term. But there are some new biologic drugs coming on the market now for things like eczema and asthma, which basically are more of a precision tool. So they're not turning off the entire immune system. They're trying to just get into that pathway that is triggering during allergic response specifically. And so they have had less side effects, not zero side effects, and they don't work for everyone. So uh, even a miracle drug like Dupixent, for instance, will clear up 75% of people's eczema, but there's still a quarter of people who won't have any reaction to them. And it's probably because the thing driving their allergies is different. But we are seeing new hope for those types of drugs, but it's dependent on us funding more basic science on immune reactions writ large. Because even something effective like immunotherapy, which is introducing small, small amounts of the thing to try to induce tolerance, Some of the research I I talked to said the most critical thing about treatment is that we don't understand tolerance. We actually understand much more about the allergy pathways and how allergy is produced than we understand why that first T cell is saying, this is fine. And if we can understand that, then the cure for allergies would be 
in being able to either retrain our immune system or to give them the right training in the beginning and thereby prevent the problem in the first place. And wouldn't that be nice? And what about something at home, like changing our habits? Don't shower as often? Yeah. I mean, we're laughing about that, but, but yeah, perhaps it's a good idea. Mirror. And, and, and watch our diets. Watch our diets. I mean, try to get more fiber. It's not easy, but, you know, eat more fruit and veg and try to have whole grains when you can. Simple things like maybe simplifying, like don't use antimicrobial stuff all the time. Like just take it easy on that kind of thing. You want to keep microbes in check, but we have to stop thinking of them as just enemies. Some of them are enemies. Obviously, I don't recommend ingesting cholera bacteria. Well, then finally, Teresa, I wonder if you could give us the big picture of what your research says about the intimate connection between our immune system and the environment and what the rise in allergies bodes or means for the fate of humanity if we are altering our environment in such a way, in many ways, so that it is irritating our bodies. I think I'm going to bring in our dogs and cats here for a second because I think they're the best evidence that we are really on the wrong path. So there's no evidence that any animals in the wild have allergies. But the animals that do are the ones that live with us. So we have seen over the past 50 years a real increase in allergies in dogs, cats, birds, horses, anything that are companion animals. And what that suggests to me is not only are we doing this, like it's something about the combination of our genetics plus our environment, but that we're altering them in a way that's not healthy for any immune system, not just ours. And so I think when we change things in our world, we have this idea like climate change. People say, oh, well, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, that might affect us. I would say people with allergies are the literal in the case of our pets, the literal canaries in the coal mine, that we are starting to see those changes now, actually, because we have altered our environment to the extent that our biology can't keep up. I like to say that it's like we're running Windows 95 in a 2023 world, but you can't download an update to the system. It doesn't work like that. And so we really have to start making decisions not just for humans, but for all of the invisible and ecological systems that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. We can't just choose for ourselves. We have to choose for the microbes also. And the cats and the And dogs. the cats and the dogs. And the canaries. Yes. Well, Teresa McPhail, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. Teresa McPhail is a medical anthropologist, and she is a professor of science and technology studies at Stevens Institute of Technology. Her book is Allergic our irritated bodies in a changing world. Well, Molly, it's always interesting to me to uh, hear information about my own body for obvious reasons. But, you know, I, I have to say, I don't have too many allergies myself, but this is really interesting to hear how our bodies can turn against us. Say more about that. Seth, what is the big picture here? Well, looking at really at the big picture, I would say this is, again, another conflict of time scales problem because our bodies, you know, have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, if not more, parts of them probably much more. And, you know, the problem is that now we're in a position with our technology to change our environment on very short time scales. So our immune systems are, you know, not fast enough to adapt to everything we do. Well, this show would not be possible without the IGA plus efforts of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostek. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that examines how our immune systems are responding to a changing world is allergy reason. Tech moves fast. 
So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.